I'm Janet Roper, and you're listening to the Reawaken Right Relationship Podcast. Welcome to this place where we have conversations about creating, nurturing, and sustaining right relationship with all sentient beings. Thank you for listening to this podcast and a hearty dose of gratitude to those who have supported this podcast by making a financial contribution. I delight in providing this on-the-house offering to you, and it is made possible for me to continue to do so thanks to the voluntary support from listeners such as yourself. To become a sustaining member or to make a one-time contribution, you will find the link in the episode notes. Thank you so much for your support. Are you someone who thinks of eating and cooking as a chore, just another thing to do on your already lengthy to-do list? Well, don't worry, you're not alone. On this episode of Reawaken Right Relationship Podcast, guest Jenny Mahan tells us how to turn cooking and eating from a chore to a joyful experience. Jenny is a registered nurse, certified health and wellness coach, and owner of Pine Creek Wellness. She works with folks who have had a health wake-up call to reclaim their health with lifestyle medicine and facilitates online and in-person healthy home cooking classes, group or one-to-one coaching to support folks to reach their health and life goals. Jenny is a mom, author, avid gardener, and singer-songwriter who is passionate about promoting local, sustainable agriculture and food justice. Disclaimer for today's episode of Reawaken Right Relationship. Everyone is unique, has different health conditions, allergies, and needs. Do what's right and works for you. Jenny does not advocate nor prescribe any specific diets or foods for health conditions. She does advocate simplifying our relationship with food, eating real, minimally processed food that is satisfying and nutritious, using common sense, moderation, and improved skills. If you have a chronic health condition or are making big changes in your diet or activities, it is always a good idea to talk with your healthcare advocate and or dietitian to start. Jenny, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode of Reawaken Right Relationship. It has been a delight knowing you and working with you in the past, what is it, five or six months? Mm -hmm. And I want to be really transparent with the um, listening audience that you and I do have a working relationship that you have been my um, fearless leader, my health and wellness coach (laughs) in that five or six month time that we've been working together. So thank you for that too. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me here. This is um, really fun. I'm looking forward to it. It is. It is. Yeah. Tell me, Jenny, what to you is right relationship? What does that mean to you? It means a lot of things to me, but I think the, the big picture thing is comes down to an awareness that we're all part of something bigger. We're all connected to that something bigger and and that and and then it all kind of flows from there you know whether that's relationships with plants or animals or each other or ourselves or an ecosystem um or how we think about ourselves in the in the scheme of 
the cosmos even if you want to get really big picture about it but yeah seriously yeah Uh Yeah, just that idea that you know there's this beautiful something bigger however you think about that 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 we're connected to and we matter and it matters and and it's kind of like we work together yeah yeah um there's a cohesiveness there um a a reciprocity i like that that there's yeah. a reciprocity that we're working together. Now, you mentioned a lot of different ways that you experience right relationship. And from my experience anyway, um, at least how I experience right relationship, I'm at different levels in my ability to be in right relationship with any one thing. And I'm learning, but you know, it's a, it's a, a process too. So in your life, what is one area that you just feel like you... You just have the cat's pajamas when it comes to right relationship. <laughs> cat's pajamas. Um, well, I think that food in a lot of ways would be that place for me, whether that's um, being in the garden or cooking with and for my family or just um, just enjoying the scent of, I have a citronella scented geranium on the windowsill, actually, who I was giving her a prune this morning, her, her spring pruning. <laughs> and that, that smell was wafting over me. And I just felt so uplifted and thankful, you know, that this plant was in my life. And so, yeah, I think that um, food for me is definitely a biggie. That's where I geek out. <laughs> yeah, and I can attest that you geek you know, out. You know that I Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And to tell the listening audience, too, that we are on Zoom right now, so I'm actually watching Jenny's eyes get really big and, you know, <laughs> just so excited about this. But the question I have for you is that my experience before meeting you was food is food, and it's just something you eat because it's something that you have to do. Mm. Um, and I've learned that that is not right relationship, at least for me. Um, when it comes to food. So how do you get to that point that, mm-hmm. you know, food is just something that you take into your body three times a day to really enjoying that um, sensual pleasure that you have as you're talking about working with your citronella plant and, you know, working mm-hmm. in your garden and everything? That's a really great question. And I think for some of us, it comes more easily than with others, especially depending on, you know, how we were raised and what we're dealing with health-wise and whatnot. But personally, um, you know, I think we've talked before about I've some, somewhere magically this passion for gardening descended into my soul. <laughs> and I can't explain it because I don't have, um, you know, gardeners or farmers in my immediate family. I have past generations of people who were truck farmers and whatnot. So I, I figure maybe that's where it came from. But um some of my earliest, most joyful memories are time spent with plants, whether that's, um, I remember my grandma grew daffodils in her yard and they would grow really, really tall because it was kind of in the woods and then they'd flop over because they were top heavy. And I would go around with popsicles and scotch tape and like splint them. <laughs> so they could again. And I also remember snapping green beans on Saturday nights. My grandma would make ham sandwiches and green beans with like bacon bits and onions. And we would snap beans together in the afternoon to prepare for that. And that was always just one of my happiest memories. So I guess maybe cooking wise, I have some really um, happy memories that kind of cultivated that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but is it okay if I read you a quote? <laughs> yes, please do. I have a quote from this book that I love called An Everlasting Meal. Um, I'm not totally sure how to pronounce her name. I think it's Tamar Adler. And it's about cooking. <laughs> she says, cooking is both simpler and more necessary than we imagine. It has in recent years come to seem a complication to juggle against other complications instead of what it can be, a clear path through them. And I think that I thought of that when you said that because I think that fits so nicely. And don't get me wrong, cooking is still not infrequently something that five o'clock rolls around. I'm like, oh man, I got to figure out what we're going to eat. <laughs> but a lot of the time, more and more, it is that clear path through. It's that's time to slow down and savor the senses and the colors and the textures. And, and my sister's more this way, actually. She's very passionate about cooking and she has three young children, you know, under the age of six. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, but she, that's what she does for her like rejuvenation time is she cooks these amazing things. And I know that's not true for everybody, but for me, that's kind of, I think watching my, my grandma and my mom cook and it was, you know, mealtime was usually a happy affair. Um, so yeah. And like I say, I know those things specifically for everyone aren't maybe true for them, but finding those connections to joy and to sensuality in the sense of like enjoying our senses um, and delight in some way related to to food or plants or cooking or you know whatever whatever it might be right right and it's different for each one of us and just want to take a moment to say that you and i are two white <laughs> chicks talking about our experience with food right. um and that uh, people are in different states of what food they need, um, the health of their bodies, all of that. So with today's episode, um, Jenny and I talked about this and it's like, take what you need and leave the rest. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, yeah. And uh, if people have questions, can they contact you? And I know that question's supposed to come at the yeah. end. Okay. Yeah, they definitely right. can. Because as you know, that's a lot of the work I'm passionate about is, especially working with folks who maybe food hasn't been a joyful thing maybe it doesn't come naturally. I think that's true for a lot of us these days. So yeah, I'm happy to geek out with folks about that. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. So I'll make sure to have that in the episode notes, how they can reach you. Um, one of the comments that you have made, and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember the exact thing, is something about the joy of the taste of the food dancing in your mouth. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, when you said that, part of me was going like, frankly, where the hell is this lady coming from? And the other part of me is going, wow, that's really cool. I want to experience that. So how does somebody get to that point where they're aware of what the, the taste is in their mouth? And it's not just <laughs> nutrition, said with air quotes, but it's actually a joyful experience of making your, is it your tongue, your taste buds? Mm -hmm. Making your body happy. How do you, go ahead. That's a great question. And I have some thoughts about that, but I'm just, I'm kind of laughing to myself because I don't know if you remember, Janet, but I got that quote from you. <laughs> oh, no, get out of here. I That's did. Funny. <laughs> In fact, I was so just blown away and impressed when I heard that come out of your mouth at some point when we were talking and that 
it really resonates with, you know, how I work with folks and what I feel about food and health and all that. But I just thought that was such a beautiful way to put it, to articulate it. <clears throat> so I think it's a co-creation quote, because I would not have been able to say that without knowing you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so how do we get to that point of food becoming joyous in our mouth? Was that the question? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, that really depends on who you are and kind of where you're starting from. First off, I think, you know, if, if you're someone who has maybe, maybe, you know, had um, like an eating disorder or, you know, concerns with food that way. um, Sorry, my phone's going off. You know, then that's a whole different journey maybe than Mm -hmm. somebody who's starting at a different place. But I think in general, trying to find positive memories or associations somewhere in your life um, and really getting into your body, settling into your body, you know, those senses that we were talking about, especially our sense of smell is really directly linked to our memories. Mm -hmm. So... um, you know, you can be, you can be doing whatever you're doing and, and get a whiff of some, you know, driving down the road is a, is a good example. Often I'll be driving down the road and I'll get, <laughs> this is kind of funny, but get a whiff of fast food smell being pumped out. <laughs> into the road. Yes, yes. And I actually get, you know, a wave of nostalgia because we traveled a lot when I was little and we ate a lot of fast food while we were, well, not a lot, we ate fast food and, and, you know, that has happy memories associated, but anyway, <clears throat> So starting with happy connotations, positive connotations, settling into your body and noticing what smells or textures or colors or tastes really give you that zing. Um, You know, for me, it's fresh rosemary with potatoes. I could just eat that till the cows come home (laughs) or, the smell and the flavor of fresh lemon zest, which I don't actually use that often, but when I smell it or, or get that whiff of something that smells like that, that just, oh, I just feel expansive and bright and happy. <laughs> so, and then from there, you know, trying to maybe experiment with working in some of those things that really delight you a little bit at a time. Even if it's, you know, it doesn't even have to be cooking. Even if it's maybe having a potted herb on the shelf. If you have anything but a north-facing window, you can probably manage an herb on the shelf. Um, I have um, some basil downstairs. And, and sometimes I just brush my hand across it just to get the smell. Yeah. And, you know, I'm hoping that I'm not disturbing the plant because um, sometimes I do it accidentally, sometimes I do it on purpose. And when I do it accidentally, it's always, I'm sorry. But when I do it on purpose, sometimes it's, I'm not thinking of the plant of being in a right relationship with it. It's just that I need this smell. So I need to remember to ask mm-hmm. the plant if it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a, um, a friend who's an Anishinaabe person who, um, said a really interesting thing to me once in a conversation. I was, my sister and I were taking a class um, from a person who's kind of an expert on foraging, you know, wild foods and stuff. And, 
And um, I think the class was about making beverages from spring flowers or something like that. And um, it was talking about using milkweed blooms to infuse water. And we were just kind of blown away at how beautifully perfumey and flowery. I, I just, I never thought about milkweed blooms before, but they almost smell like lilacs, which I think is amazing and cool. But anyway, somebody brought up the concern about, you know, milkweed is the only or one of the main food sources for monarch butterflies. And, you know, should we really be picking the flowers and because that's what turns into the seeds to make more milkweeds and all this stuff. And, and my friend kind of piped up and, you know, with this more indigenous perspective that her, she had gotten from her grandmother about, and I mean, obviously starting from a place from responsible wildcrafting, you know, taking it from a place where there's plenty and, you know, starting with that kind of thing. But then from there, kind of turning things around and seeing it from the plant's perspective. And she was suggesting that the plants want um, I want to say want to be used and, and I feel like there's a more beautiful way to say that but I'm not thinking of it right now um, they want to they want to nourish us they want to be in relationship with us just like we want to be in relationship with them and she kind of likened it to you know this is a little bit like anthropomorphizing but um, kind of likened it to when you go to grandma's house and she has baked treats and like it's warm and cozy and you know, hopefully, <clears throat> um, and you know, walking to an, a field of blooming milkweed can be that same kind of experience if we let it. I don't know if that makes sense. I, I think it does. It's beautifully said too. And I never thought about infusing with the um, blooming milkweed. Is it the flower you use or the, the pod? Yep, the flower. The flower, okay. Yep. Wow, never thought about that. I, I don't have any milkweed here. I had a lot. Um, at my home in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of funny because the birds planted them. I didn't. I just yeah. thought they were so beautiful. Uh -huh. And I had an HOA and they were not happy with the dandelions and the, um, you know, the mm. milkweed that was in my yard. But I'm going, yeah, butterflies like it. Such is life. Right. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> so if I understand you correctly, one of the first ways to start um, Improving, that's not quite the right word, but getting in right relationship with food is to start with happy memories. So start from an ancestral point of view. I think that's certainly one way. I, I guess that's for me where it starts. And um, I think that it can, I think it certainly can start other ways too, you know, for folks who maybe that doesn't come as easily. Mm -hmm. I think it can definitely come from kind of like we started talking about that that place of awareness that there is something bigger we're part of it it's part of us and then kind of learning the story I guess that's one of the things that that I really I think it's my artist heart maybe that kind of draws me to food whether it's gardening or cooking because like I was saying, the textures and the colors and the scents and the aromas, but also the story behind it all and the story in the sense of, you know, where the food comes from and where it's grown and how it's grown. Um, but even things like, you know, Michael Pollan's book, Botany of Desire, I found really fascinating because he tells stories about various, 
I think four different kinds of plants, like one was tulips, potatoes, apples, and then I can't remember the other one. Um, but like tulips, for example, back in the day in Europe where the bulbs were used as a form of currency because people went so gaga over them that they were more valuable than coin. And, and that, and you know, he, he proposes this theory that the plants have used us to kind of evolve themselves and continue on and get passed along and, and, and whatnot um, be, by delighting us and, you know, being delicious or being beautiful. Um, and, you know, not that that's the only reason, obviously, that they're there is for human enjoyment, certainly, right, by any right, stretch of the imagination. Right. But, but there is that relationship. And so, you know, starting from that place of being connected and kind of holding a sense of magic and wonder and then going out looking for it and just being open to it because it's kind of all around us, but it's easy to get really too busy or overwhelmed by modern life. Monkey mind. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so sometimes when I go outside, what I do is to get rid of the monkey mind is I will just focus on one sense and maybe it's the sense of sound. And so everything else is just a void. And it's like, what, what five sounds am I hearing at this moment in time? Mm. And that just really helps me get rid of the monkey mind. Yeah. And in today's society where, you know, we're on the computer so much and we're on social media so much and everything is how many likes can you get and how much of this and how much of that, that mm -hmm. it's almost, we've lost the, um, the skill mm. of just zone, excuse me, just zooming in on what am I hearing right now? Yeah. What am I smelling right now? Yeah. And I just think it does us a world of good to do that. And, you know, as you were talking about the plants that they've used us, um, I, I totally get that. And I understand it. And it makes total sense from an animistic point of view. But I can also say that um, there might be some listeners who are going to find that a foreign concept. Mm. Because to me, it's like um, humans, I think, think of I'm going to give to the plant. I'm going to help the plant. I'm going to tend the plant. I'm going to nurture the plant. Forgetting that it's a two-way street. Right. That yeah. that plant is also nurturing us in mm -hmm. some way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great point. You know, plants, plants are people too. <laughs> you know, they, they, and we know this intuitively <laughs> and, and inherently, I think, if we think about it and stop to feel about it. But I mean, if you're the kind of person that wants research too, there's been lots of research done, you know, plants feel pain, plants communicate with each other, plants, you know, try to protect their young, it's, or their relations. Um, yeah, I think that that's a great suggestion to practice. It's kind of a mindfulness practice, right? To practice right. being present and then to start noticing right. those kind of things. Plants sing also. Yeah, I always yeah. mess up this name. I think it's Damaher, mm. but it's um, a place I believe in Scotland. I'm probably screwing up all the facts because I'm not good with facts. Um, but it's where people um, there, scientists and lay people, have worked with the plants, have developed a relationship with the plants, mm -hmm. and have recorded the plants singing. And it's just damn beautiful music. I'm going to add that mm -hmm. link also to the episode resources. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, just to hear the plants, you know, in music. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and granted, I, I think like with the birds, they've got some Bach going on too. But <laughs> hearing the, the, the plants respond to that, mm-hmm. it just really takes, uh, for me, puts a different perspective on a plant is not just a plant. Yeah. A plant is so much more. Yeah, I love that. You know, we, we, we humans get very human-centered, which is fine. That's understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's kind of fun when you can shift that a little and not only see things from other people's like perspectives, like other human perspectives, because we could certainly stand to do a lot more of that as well, <laughs> but other creatures' perspectives and you know other beings' perspective, whether that's the apple tree in the yard or... Or, you know, and I want to mention too, you know, you're talking before about, you know, here we white ladies are sitting here, you know, talking about our places in the world, but, um, you know, there's exceptions to everything, but even, even folks in the deep city, there's often community gardens or little pockets of things. I remember stepping out, visiting a city once with family and we stepped out onto the street and as soon as we stepped out of the car, there was a serviceberry tree in full fruiting right there. And, you know, that's not necessarily true every single place, but um, I think that, um, was it Howard Kavitzin? I, I can't remember his name either. Like you said, I'm not so great with facts, but, you know, talks about wherever you are, wherever you go, there you are, I think. Is yes, it. yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway. To be aware of that. Um, one of the areas that you've really helped me in is cooking. Because as a single person, um, first of all, not being taught to cook. Second of all, not having the desire, or I thought I didn't have the desire to cook. Um, and then just thinking, well, it's basically cheaper to go out and you know, just have dinner instead of buying food with some of it going bad and everything. Uh, which I, I've learned that that's, you know, not quite straight thinking on my part, but, you know, been there, done that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some ways to help people to start making friends with their kitchen? Mm. Ooh, I like that question. <laughs> wow, there's so many places where you could dig into that. Um, I think that, again, I always encourage people to start with delight. So, and what I mean by that in this sense is, again, you know, thinking about what tastes, what textures, what cuisines, what kind of foods you really love, really, really enjoy, really, really delight you. And maybe if you don't already know, you know, start experimenting with learning, you know, maybe take one recipe and experiment with practicing kind of getting that under your belt Um, and just really slowly adding in things or maybe it's not even a whole recipe maybe it's just um, learning to make pesto and having that on hand or or just having fresh basil on hand having some fresh herbs that you love the smell of go to the store and smell stuff go to the farmer's market and smell stuff or in a friend's garden and smell stuff and and what you like you know bring a little bit home and experiment with how to use it And then beyond that, I think, um, you know, I I talk a lot about skill power versus willpower. Uh (laughs) We humans like to beat ourselves up with the idea of willpower, which I think is poppycock. Um, I think a lot of, 
<laughs> a lot of a lot of things that we think come down to willpower are really um, having the skills and the knowledge and the experience and the abilities and all this stuff in place, not so much just being able to buckle down and do it. So as an example, um, you know, things like I teach a knife skills class because most people don't feel like they need knife skills. And most of us, when we think of knife skills, think of like rock star chefs on TV, <laughs> like chopping at 60 miles an hour and it's kind of scary and intimidating and we don't want to do that. So that's not what I'm talking about, but just, you know, some simple strategies around um, having a really sharp knife that cuts well and cuts easily and is therefore safer. Cause if it's a dull knife, you're, you know, struggling and then it slips and you cut yourself. Or, um, you know, so just having a decent, a, a few pieces of really basic, decent equipment, like a good cutting board and a really nice sharp knife. Little things like even trying out, like being brave and trying out a bigger knife, because once you master some really basic, simple ways to use it that aren't complicated and scary that any of us can do, it actually speeds up your cooking time a lot. And, you know, let's be honest, time is a factor for a lot of us when it comes to time in the kitchen because we have a lot going on and cooking doesn't come as naturally for most of us anymore. So if it takes us longer to do it, we're that much less likely to bother. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, making your kitchen a nicer place to be in to the extent you can. Um, if you can play music, if that's your thing while you cook or have a loved one in there to hang out with you and cook with you or talk to you while you, <laughs> while you, cook or sing together or sing by yourself. Um, if you have a scented plant on the windowsill, if you have a windowsill <laughs> in your kitten, kitchen, um, you know, it doesn't have to be having a fancy rich person's kitchen, but, you know, little things that make being in your kitchen a delightful thing. That's one area that I was really struggling with was um, how to be in the kitchen um, because my kitchen I, I've always thought that since I don't like to cook, claimed I didn't like to cook, that I needed the perfect kitchen, mm -hmm. which was not necessarily, you know, the, the rich person's kitchen, but it was definitely, you know, having enough counter space mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And that's even something that you've helped me with is mm -hmm. rearranging my counters yeah, so that there is more space, Yeah, which, you know, you would think that I would think of that myself, but I was so used to living in the situation that I couldn't see past mm -hmm. The, the situation to see solutions. Yeah. Yep. And, and another thing that you really helped me with, and this has been like really big, um, is getting the containers, having this, the containers on hand, whether that is, you know, um, cottage cheese containers that you saved or mm -hmm. the Ziploc that you could get the super top thingies or, you know, freezer right. bags or whatever, so that when you are preparing the food that you've got what the next step is already taken care of. And right. not like what I was doing was, oh, damn, now I've got this food. How am I going to save it? Oh, crap, I don't want to have to eat it for the next two weeks kind of thing. Right. Um, and then the other thing that made a really big difference was the way I rearranged my refrigerator. Mm. <laughs> because what I did, since I had the containers, it was like I could see what was in the containers, and they were all in front Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay, I can see I've got this much celery, I've got this much green onion, I've got this much tomatoes, you know, I've got this much um, leftover lasagna or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that just really helped me. And also because I'm the kind of person that I, 
that it has to be literally under my nose before I will see it. You know, yeah. um, it was like if something got lost in the back of the refrigerator, well, it was definitely in the, in the twilight zone, in the Bermuda Triangle of life of the refrigerator. Um, and I'd be pulling out all this green icky stuff. Yeah. Um, so just making those really small changes, um, cost effective mm -hmm. and giving me peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Those little things seem little, but they actually have a huge effect on our experience in the kitchen and our likelihood that we're going to do more in there and use what we have. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty, um, demoralizing to pull a bag of liquefied kale out of the back of the fridge. That stuff is nasty. <laughs> yes, and then it leaks. It has the audacity to leak. Right. It never stays in the bag like it should, you know. Right. Um, yeah, so just little things like that. And starting with the little things, and those little steps really add up, just yeah. incredibly so. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that was what else I, I wanted to make sure to say to people, you know, if we're talking about kind of ways to, um, I forget how you phrased it, it was so nice, like re reconnect with your kitchen or something yeah. like that. Yeah, make um, friends with your kitchen. Make friends with your kitchen, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the power of small steps and, and as you know, like when I say that I'm talking truly tiny things because we tend to, when we decide we want to make a change, we tend to go, go, excuse me, go cold turkey or jump in whole hog and pretty quick get overwhelmed or frustrated, make a mess, cut our fingers, whatever it is, and get discouraged and don't keep up with it. And people shouldn't feel bad about that because that's human nature. That's super common. We all do it. And having said that, that's where those teeny tiny steps come in. They might feel like they aren't making a difference or they couldn't possibly make a difference. But if you work the teeny tiny steps, they build on each other and start become kind of becoming an exponential effect where this, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Right. That makes sense. Right. Right. And then it becomes habit too. No, mm -hmm. I just lied. Um, yes, it, it becomes a habit, but then all of a sudden it turns into a way of life. Right. That I, you know, speaking for myself personally, I wouldn't thought it was possible six months ago. Yes. You know, that it's, yeah. I, I had nothing in my ancestry and my family um, to role model that for me. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, what I saw was on cooking shows on TV where everything is just, you know, perfect, <laughs> or at least the ones I watched. Or, you know, you know like you say, you know, the, the, the rich a white person's kitchen that's mm -hmm. got all the bells and the whistles and the 95 ovens and, you know, all this right. kind of stuff. Right. And just to think that in my own little kitchen, which doesn't even have an exhaust fan, that it could make such a difference mm -hmm. in, in my enjoyment of being in the kitchen and also in my self-care mm -hmm. um, from being, spending more time cooking in the kitchen. Yeah. yeah we, that, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to agree with you. You know, we don't, we don't have to have Martha Stewart set up in order to eat well. I think Julia Child said, or actually I have it right here. Let me just look really quick. <laughs> I love that you have all these quotes at fingertips. I'm such a cooking geek and she is one of my heroines. Um, Julia Child, where did you go? Oh, here. Cooking well doesn't mean cooking fancy. And I love that. You know, you don't have to have the ritzy kitchen and all the fancy equipment or even a lot of know-how 
um, you know, if you could get your hands on some decent food and take those tiny steps, even in a tiny kitchen, and I say that from personal experience, I lived in a one room Strabile cabin off grid with no electricity or running water for 10 years. And my kitchen space was about three feet, my counter space was about three feet long and about two of that was actually usable. So um, I know, <laughs> I know that it's possible to eat well in a tiny space and, and still mostly enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, you're speaking from experience there. Um, one of the things that keeps coming to mind, and I don't know why, is that we've been talking about the ancestral connection with food. And when I was growing up, the seasonings were salt and more salt. Mm. And, you know, gee, have some more salt if that's not enough. <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes maybe if people are thinking of changing, um, having those flavors uh, dance in their mouth, mm. is to change the amount of salt that they're using. Mm -hmm. to play around with that, something as simple as that. Maybe it's adding pepper, you yeah. know? Maybe it's adding um, another kind of seasoning, maybe an Italian seasoning or something, just to play with that. Yeah, I think learning some basics about flavor, which aren't complicated, is can really go a long way too. Um, and I just want to defend salt a little bit because salt gets a really bad rap because our modern food system just dumps the salt in there and kind of overwhelms us with it. And yes, that's not healthy. But salt really does play an important role in flavor. When you're home cooking, you have a lot, obviously have control over how much and what goes in. So you're almost never going to use as much salt as a restaurant or, you know, fast food joint or whatever it is. So, you know, I just don't want folks to be afraid of using salt. But having said that, I think that's a really great point that there's a few neat little tricks to improve the flavor of a dish without necessarily using more salt. Um, and a couple of those, you know, it's things like maybe, like say you're making a soup, taking some of the vegetables, like especially, even if it's just onions, taking onions and a little oil, if you've got some garlic, that's great. Maybe a few like sturdier herbs, like sage, sage is really sturdy. And, um, you know, saute those in the bottom of the soup pot for a minute or two. Or if you're putting meat in there, brown the meat in there a little bit too. And then add the other ingredients and the broth or the water or whatever it is. And just that one little thing somehow magically transforms the flavor of the whole thing. It makes it deeper and richer and just more full-bodied. I don't understand it, but it works. <laughs> and um, I didn't believe it until I tried it myself. Because I was the kind, um, before I got my Instant Pot, it was the slow cooker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just dump it in and go kind of mm -hmm. thing. And then you suggested sauteing the vegetables. And I did, um, because mostly I'm obedient. And you told me to do it, that's why we do it. Um, and like the, the flavor was incredibly different. It was more robust mm -hmm. and, and a richer flavor. And it didn't even take like, you know, all that much time or an arm and a leg to just, you know, cut up the vegetables, throw them in the pan, um, saute them, boom, there you're, it's done. Yeah. That kind of thing. I think at least from my experience um, and how I was not taught skills in cooking, just having little steps like that can make a world of difference. Yeah. I often, I often struggle because I have family members or friends or or whoever who will ask me for a recipe of something that I've made that I fed them. And I always pause kind of awkwardly because I don't have that many recipes that I actually use as recipes. And not because I'm this fancy, amazing cook or anything, 
but because I've spent enough time with cooking in my life now that I've kind of gleaned some of those um, basic tips and ideas, I guess, like, you know, sauteing, I think I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of the word, but the, but this is actually a term for what we were just talking about. And it's called sofrito or sofrito, I think. But anyway, um, you know, and when, and, and it doesn't have to take a lifetime or a long time, but, you know, learning a few of those, like you said, those tricks and tips or kind of basically like, okay, this is sort of the template for a soup. And then you can make it whatever you want. You don't even have to follow a recipe. And that I think is where, cooking gets really creative and fun and interesting and you can make it your own you know if you are cooking from a recipe and you don't have one or more of the ingredients it can be a real downer because now you feel like oh I can't make this thing that I plan to make and now what do I do what are we going to eat or maybe it won't be good but you know if you kind of have like the soup template in your head you can just go in your fridge or your pantry or your dry goods shelf whatever mm -hmm. and kind of see what you have and start start throwing things in and experimenting yeah yeah it's a freedom I, I, kind of it is it is um and i think it takes a lot of courage to get to that freedom too you know because mm -hmm. at least what i what little bit i was taught about cooking growing up was you had to follow the recipe exactly mm -hmm. and anybody who knows me knows it's not in my genes to do something exactly <laughs> supposed to be done right <laughs> you know, I was a horrible failure at that um, one of the things that I like to do is my sense of smell mm -hmm. if I'm trying to decide what herb to use mm -hmm. I'll just you know take a whiff of it and it's like oh that smells really good mm -hmm. I'll just throw that in yeah um, so I'm finding that's fascinating how in for me learning to become more in right relationship with food um, is also enhancing other parts of my life, my creativity, um, my, my sense of smell, my sense of taste, my sense of, of being actually. Yeah. And I never would have thought that before. Never, ever, 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 ever. I remember <laughs> being taught that you eat to fill yourself up mm -hmm. and nothing about the nutrition or much less the taste mm -hmm. and the subtleties of sauteing something before you put it into a soup. Yeah, I, I'm sure we've talked before, just the two of us, about how food nourishes, nourishes us in more ways than just nutrients in our body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think you're, I know that you're not alone. I know that a lot of us start from a place or come from a place of food is fuel. Right. You know, that, right. That's pretty much it. And even then, you know, even the health sphere right now is brimming over with um, nutrition claims and we've gotten all a little obsessed I think about nutrition and so I, I love that to kind of even step beyond you know not just food as fuel but even beyond nutrients for our body to thinking about the other ways that food nourishes us you know, there's a reason that we have the phrase comfort food. Comfort food isn't about necessarily being healthy. It's not about fueling our bodies. It's not about nutrition. It's about comfort and satisfaction and delight usually. Yeah. Yeah. Deliciousness. <laughs> Those memories like, like you were saying that you had with your grandmother of shelling the beans. 
mm-hmm. um, that kind, that's comfort. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the other relationships that it maybe facilitates or yeah, all kinds of ways. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about eating. Could we talk a, a little bit about beverages too? Yeah. Because one thing that you've talked about is a shrub. Mm-hmm. Again, I'd never heard about that. And all of a sudden I'm drinking these shrubs and what's happening is that I'm drinking less tea because when I make a shrub, I'm not using tea as the base. I'm using water as the base. Mm -hmm. And so I'm getting more water in that way. So that's one of those sneaky little tips that you are so good at doing. How do you get more water? Well, Jana, drink a shrub. What's a shrub, Jenny? Let me tell you about a shrub. So tell us about a shrub, Jenny. Sure. Yeah. So I kind of, um, I teach a healthy hydration class and that's one of the, the, tricks, the sneaky tricks, as you put it, that I use. Because let's face it, we, we modern people drink a lot of soda and other things and not even, you know, no, no guilt trip or down on anybody about that. It's just a fact. But, you know, our taste buds get kind of fried from that. And so a lot of people over and over in my nursing work and my coaching work, I, I hear from everybody, oh, I don't like water or I can't drink water. And it's understandable, you know, because we've gotten so acclimated, if you will, to the taste of soda that water is just like boring. Why would I bother with that, right? <laughs> so I try to encourage people, again, instead of trying to go cold turkey, if you're trying to drink more water, you know, instead of going from cold turkey from soda to just water, kind of, you know, having some transition phases in there where, you know, maybe you go from soda to a shrub, for instance, like you're saying. So a shrub is basically, um, it's an old fashioned vinegar based drink, which might sound kind of gross to people, but just stick with me here for a minute. (laughs) Um, You infuse vinegar and um, maybe make a syrup, um, infused syrup also with whatever you want. It could be some kind of fruit or berry. It could be spices. Um, One of my favorites is like blueberry and ginger. Um, another one that I stumbled across one winter when I wanted elderberry because elderberry is really good traditional, um, kind of immune health booster during cold season and whatnot, um, was an elderberry ginger shrub. And that one was delicious. There's, there's all kinds. You can use herbs, your citronella scented geranium on the, on the shelf. Um, so you, you infuse vinegar and some, you know, sugar and, so you end up with kind of this really concentrated, sweetened, vinegar-flavored, uh, I want to say syrup, but that's not really the right phrase. And then, so you just, then when you go to drink it, you just pour a little bit of the shrub into the bottom of your glass. So maybe you've got like an eighth of an inch in the bottom of your glass, and then you fill the rest with water. You could use sparkling water. You could use tea, like you said. Um, you could also even add some rum in there if that's your thing, you know, if you want a cocktail that's got some other good stuff in it for you. And it has, I found this works really well, especially for folks who like maybe want to cut back on their evening glass of wine or beer because they don't feel so great the next morning. And I'm not saying you have to cut it out completely, but you know, maybe to like just um, scale it back a little bit to feel better. But it often has become, like a tradition to 
um, at one example, you know, was to sit down with your husband in the evening and have this glass of wine while you watch TV or whatever, for example, and you still want to have that special drink. So now if you have the shrub, you've got your special drink. It still has kind of that zing and that tang, and it's not the same as wine, but it's not just water or just juice either. It's a really different flavor than I think our modern palates are used to, which kind of fills an interesting flavor niche for us. So like the basic recipe would be um, like apple cider vinegar, mm -hmm. equal parts of apple cider vinegar, some kind of sugar, maybe it's honey mm -hmm. or something. <coughs> Excuse me. And then um, either a juice or water or something yeah. like that. And that makes up the basic shrub that you can add to, like you were saying, um, a tea, sparkling water or water. Yeah. And, you, yeah. and yeah. And you can also, you know, if you get, um, if you have access to, you know, the fall apples or um, we have wild plums that grow wild in the ditch down the road from us in the fall, you know, things like that. And you can use fruit that's not maybe like the best quality for fresh eating. They can be a little funky, but still edible. And that's a great thing to use in a shrub where you just kind of like simmer it um, in some water and sugar and flavor it that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, um, I have at least one more question, possibly two for you. Are we doing okay, okay on time? Because I'm I don't good. want... Okay, I'm, excellent. I'm okay. <laughs> All right. So my question is um, that always before... I should like frame it my life before Jenny and after Jenny. Okay. <laughs> so before Jenny, it was like, in order to be healthy, I had to be X number of pounds and I had to have a certain physique and I had to have certain, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, I have learned from you and from um, a colleague also um, about health at every size. Mm -hmm. can, can you address that, what that means for people? Sure. Um, so health at, at every size, just kind of in a nutshell, starts with acknowledging that there is a very large um, stigma towards and bias against fat people, larger people, and a thin bias. So, um, and, and a lot of it is in general in pop culture, but even in the medical community, you know, folks who are large, who go to the doctor, will almost always get told that they need to lose weight regardless of what they went there for. Um, they often have their medical concerns um, not looked into as thoroughly or assessed the way that a thin person would if they walked in. So there's that piece of it, acknowledging that there is this problem. Um, and then, you know, from there it talks about fat bodies are not inherently sick bodies. And thin bodies are not inherently healthy bodies either, you know, vice versa. So basically focusing on behavior changes to cultivate well-being regardless of weight or calorie counting or, you know, all of that focus on weight and diet and weight loss that almost all of us have, especially as women, this is you know, we absorb this as little children. And um, I think it's something like, oh, I can't remember the right statistic now. And I don't want to say the wrong thing, but most girls 
by a pretty young age have been on a, have tried a diet of some sort. And I know the CDC has a statistic that in the last year, 50% of Americans tried to lose weight by dieting. So anyway, health at every size focuses on healthy behaviors like getting enough sleep, drinking some water, you know, moving your body in ways that are enjoyable for you, not, you know, kind of beating yourself up. <laughs> you know, you don't have to run a marathon to be healthy. You don't have to lose 50 pounds necessarily to be healthy. You don't have to, you know, cut out entire food groups to be healthy, but working on ways to bring more well-being into your life and not just focusing or not focusing on weight loss. Because right now that's one of the, the main ways that the medical community and a lot of the coaching community and most of the health and wellness industry comes at it. Um, and you know, so that ends up looking like things like intuitive eating and because if you're not calorie counting and you're not restricting and you know, then what are you doing? Right. <laughs> so that's kind of a whole, um, a whole set of new skills to learn around intuitive eating and body acceptance and all that good stuff. And what is intuitive eating? I mean, how can you eat intuitively if your body has been trained that it likes, um, you know, fast food or that it likes um, fried food or, you know, that? How do you yeah. make that switch? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that could be a whole podcast of its own. I think but, you're right on that, yes. But, um, you know, and there's probably people who, there's definitely people who have a lot of great resources out there like that. Like, I think one of the links I gave you um, called Be Nourished would be, mm -hmm. if people are interested in that, would be a really great place to go. Um, there's also a woman named Isabel Foxenduke, I think is her name, um, who does a lot of good work around that. But yeah, you're right. It's a journey for sure. There's a lot of unlearning to go on that goes on. And it's definitely a journey to learn to trust your body and the signals that it gives you because we've spent most of us a lifetime either ignoring those signals or discounting them or actively suppressing them. Um, so I think some of it goes back to what you were saying earlier around mindfulness. You know, if there's a way that you can kind of pause and prioritize, you know, step back for a minute and do whatever you need to do to kind of get centered in your body, whether that's deep breathing or sniffing the scented geranium on the windowsill, petting the cat, you know, whatever it is that tends to kind of soothe your system a little bit long enough to pause and just think, what do I really want? You know, not what am I, what am I eating to try to cope with a feeling that I'm having because I'm upset, you know, I'm, I'm having an emotional experience and, and not that emotional eating is wrong or inherently bad either. You know, there's a time and a place for that, but just so that hopefully we get to a place where we're choosing it more consciously. And it seems like it goes back to those little steps you were talking about. That yeah. all goes back to those, those little steps. Yeah, starting small and just not beating up on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think... We do enough of that. <laughs> no, exactly. And if we don't, there sure are people out there who will do it for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is 
eating seasonally and eating with color. I guess that's two different mm -hmm. topics. Mm -hmm. uh, but that might be places to start. You know, if, if someone um, isn't quite to the point where they can trust their body signals yet, well, mm -hmm. what's in season? You know, yeah. coming up, what's in season? Maybe that's a place for people to start. I like that because I actually had somebody this morning say to me, you know, we're supposed to eat the rainbow. What does that mean? Does that mean Skittles are okay? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. And a really <laughs> exactly. Yes. And you know, sometimes a lot of people think because thinks because I'm a nurse or a health coach that I would look down on that. Um, and I just want to point out that I think there's a time and a place for Skittles. <laughs> I think that I don't judge anybody for what they eat ever. Um, but, you know, if people are trying to be more mindful about what they eat or feel better, there are things that are going to help us feel better more than other things. Skittles usually don't make us physically feel good long term. <laughs> um, right. But sometimes they are soothing in a different way. So anyway, um, <clears throat> Oh yeah, eating seasonally. Sorry, I almost lost my train of thought. Yeah, eating seasonally or just thinking about um, what this food is is a, is a great place to start. Like right now, we're in what traditionally was called the hunger gap or the hungry gap where, you know, the root cellar is getting pretty thin and all the food that we've saved up from last year when we were more, you know, farming, gathering communities is, you know, really running out before the new stuff, at least up here in the Northwoods where I am, before the new sprouts have started growing and, and all that. So, so when those first greens burst forth and people can eat fresh greens, that's a celebration. You know, this time of year often, um, you know, that, that first fresh spinach or even dandelion greens, if you're into foraging, milkweed, milkweed again, milkweed stems, are really tender and juicy. There's all kinds of things to just um, delight in this time of year and, and all times of year. But yeah. I think, yeah, the seasonal eating and not, not from a place of should, because I think there's a lot of that out there too, you know, mm -hmm. but um, from a place of delight. Yeah, from a place of relationship too. Right. Because if you think about it, you know, if you're eating seasonally, then you're more likely to be in relationship with yes. the food that you are eating, yes. Exactly. So what is one thing that you would like to leave our listening audience, Jenny? Hmm. Just be gentle with yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we were saying earlier on about <coughs> trying to see things, at least sometimes, from a not-human perspective. Okay. And then um, lastly, how can people contact you? Sure. Um, my website is a great way. It's Jenny Mahan, J-E-N-N-Y-M-A-H-A-N.com. And I do have a little um, free booklet of recipes. It's five one-pot recipes. And I also am offering right now in April and May um, free one-off sessions. I'm calling what the hell should I eat sessions <laughs> because this is something that keeps coming up, everything we've talked about. So those are all on there. You can find it there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your, your love and your respect for food and your expertise and your knowledge. It is greatly appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Janet. You are welcome.
Do you love what you're hearing on this podcast? I sure hope so. And if you are loving it, I ask that you show support by liking it and leaving a comment or review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. You can also show your support by sharing it with your friends and family. And I so appreciate your help. Thank you. I think you'll enjoy the podcast, Everyday Animism, that I co-host with two exceptional women, Kelly Harrow of SoulfulIntentArts.com and Brandis Schnabel of SoulfulFocus.com. In this podcast, we explore all things animism, particularly how animism impacts everyday life. You can find it here at Anchor or on your favorite podcast platform. The 20 plus years that I have spent writing, speaking, podcasting, and sharing what I know with you have all been to support your life and relationship with the animals and the other nature beings you love so dearly. I share what I know and intuit freely, a gift from my heart and spirit to you and the sentient beings of the world. It's a body of work grounded in love and infinite respect for all life, because we all do better when all creatures do better. If you find my work helpful, if an article or a podcast has inspired or informed you or expanded possibilities in your world, a donation would be deeply appreciated as a way to show your support. You can make a payment of any amount at paypal.me backslash Janet Roper, or simply go to my website, www.janetroper.com, and at the top you will see a tab that says Make a Contribution, and you can make your contribution there. I thank you very much. Your contribution makes my work sustainable. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have enjoyed hearing this, remember to subscribe to the podcast on Anchor or iTunes. And if you would like to follow more of my work, please visit www.janetroper.com. Hey folks, I'm going to invite you to espresso your gratitude for this podcast. If you love listening to this podcast, as I listen to so many podcasts, I'm kind of a podcast nerd, I always think that the podcast is for free because I'm listening to it for free, right? Well, you know what? To consume, yes, podcasts are free, but to create and produce, no, they are not free. Because creating and producing podcasts, it's a labor of love for me, but it's still a labor. Because there's writing, researching, providing commentary, providing community, contacting guests, interviewing, recording, sound editing, creating the script, creating the social media, promoting... Did I forget anything? Oh, yeah, I did. Um, there's also website and internet expenses. And all of this to provide content and a podcast that hopefully inspires or informs you and leads you to expanded possibilities in the world. How about showing your support by contributing the equivalent of one cup of coffee? That contribution would be greatly appreciated and a great way to show your backing of the podcast that I create and the labor that goes into making it. So the best way to do that is you can either go to my website, janetroper.com, and you will see the link there for Espresso Your Gratitude. Or you can just go to the episode page here, and you will see the link to be able to make a contribution. Thank you so much, and it is truly your contributions and support that makes my work sustainable.